0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation Chapter Four, Revelation Chapter Four, beginning in verse one. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Last Lord's Day, we had uh, an opportunity to consider Queen Elizabeth and her important role in uh, encouraging the English nation in the face of the Spanish Armada. You remember the year was 1588. And her appearance at the head of the army brought courage back to a nation that was greatly afraid. And you remember uh, Simon Shama, an English historian, said, what is a queen for if not for 1588 and the crisis that England was facing? One of the things that made her impact on that event uh, so powerful was Elizabeth's sense of um, the importance of developing the royal image. She was, in some ways, second to none in this regard. She knew that the people not only needed a monarch, but they needed some sense of the royal. And so she always attempted to portray herself in this way. This meant uh, whenever she was seen, she was clothed in a manner that was fitting for royalty and to communicate the presence of royalty to people. She was a great lover of pomp and circumstance and uh, visual spectacles and displays. and all meant to create something of a of a royal image. And she created a very powerful image in the mind of her people. She was the glorious virgin queen and always remembered as such. When we compare uh, Elizabeth over against some of the figures that we see in the Bible, we can be pretty confident that Elizabeth was nothing compared to Solomon. In all of his glory. And the Lord Jesus teaches us that Solomon was nothing compared with the lily in the field. And all nothing compared to the Most High. As he has portrayed to us here. Let us set our context before us again. We have just turned the corner from the things that are the condition of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, to the things that shall be hereafter, the vision of future things. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we have the setting of the visionary scene or stage on which the uh, future events will, will play out in a symbolic fashion. John has been called up to view these things in vision, in the spirit. The spiritual realities that are normally hidden from our view are going to be revealed to John. The first thing that John sees is God upon the throne. God portrayed here as sovereign, powerful, and majestic. And he is on the throne. He's not abdicated the throne. As tumultuous and chaotic as this world's realm might seem at times, we can be sure that God is seated upon the throne, ruling over all, and that all things are well in hand. Beginning with verse 3, we get some further description of what John saw. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. What has transpired up to this point has been relatively plain in this chapter. And now the difficulties begin. This is a symbolic and visionary representation of God. I want to make sure that we don't become confused at this point. Children, you might remember your catechism. Can you see God? What is the answer? No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. Why can't you see God? Do you remember uh, what we had in our shorter catechism? What is God? God is a spirit. He has a spirit. He is a spirit. He has a spiritual nature which you cannot see with your eyes. So when when we're speaking about God, quite simply, there is no body, no physical uh, thing to see. What John sees is symbolic and visionary. And these symbols are meant to teach us about God's nature. It is said here that he that sat upon the that sat was to look upon like, and notice the language of comparison. It's not saying what he is, it is saying what he is like. It's a symbolic representation meant to teach us about the nature of God. So far, so good. So far, things are relatively plain. But here we have the mention of two precious stones, and now things become difficult. What is a jasper stone? God is said to be here likened in appearance unto a jasper. We can say one thing for sure. We are certain that jasper was a precious stone. And this speaks very much of God's glory. And at this point, we've got our feet on pretty solid ground. But as far as a more precise signification or significance to this Jasper stone, it becomes difficult. The difficulty with the Jasper stone is in the ancient world, there were a variety of stones that went by that name. They were all quartz-like and opaque. So they weren't uh, transparent or translucent stones. They were um, stones that you couldn't see through, although they would reflect light. And they were found in a very wide variety of colors. You see the difficulty here now in saying what is said it's like under the jasper stone, but you could find a great uh, variety of colors in jasper. Dr. Collings in uh, Poole's annotations said that this was uh, uh, one thing that they have in common is their variety of colors. And so this is meant to represent the manifold perfections of God. So the variety is the point in Dr. Cowling's view. I think that there might also be something else here in view. In your outline, I have have given you Exodus 28.18. In the English it reads, And the second row. What's being described here is the breastplate of the high priest. Breastplate. And on that breastplate there were twelve stones. And here we have the second row of three. And the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. I've given you the the Hebrew there. The Yahalom. We'll come to the significance of that. The Septuagint translators render it. Yaspis, or Jasper, the very thing that we have here in, uh, in John. And remember, the Greek of the New Testament is heavily influenced by the Septuagint. Yahalom in Hebrew is derived from, from a verb, halam, which means to hammer, like to strike something with a hammer. And so here, the reason it's rendered a diamond is it was something that was invincible to the blows of a hammer. And uh, Jasper could be a sign of invincible power. And Virgil's Aeneid, it was, on the, it was on the hilt of Aeneas as a sign that he could not be conquered. So on the hilt of his sword was Jasper as a sign of, of invincible power. So which of these things might be in view? Manifold perfections or invincible power? It's hard to say with absolute certainty. Both are suitable here, but I have to confess both things are a bit, a bit speculative. Sometimes I have wondered um, in some of these symbols, uh, we, we have the advantage that both of these things are true in the sense that God is a God almighty and of invincible power. This is very much part of the point of this book. But he is also a God of manifold uh, perfections. Both of these things are true. The only question is, which if either is this image meant to signify? It's hard to say. But I have frequently wondered if these uh, visionary and symbolic representations are meant to lead us into these very sorts of meditations. We might not be able to conclude exactly what is intended by this particular text, but these are all biblical meditations and meditations that are profitable. Happily enough, the Signing Stone is, is a bit clearer. The sard, or sardius, or sardine stone, was another precious stone. And once again, we can be sure that this is indicative of God's glory. But it was a red stone, very much like unto the ruby. Some think it to be the ruby that is intended here. And so this would yield some possible meanings. Perhaps God is active and powerful, like a fire. That's one possibility. But it could also speak of his judgment and justice and even uh, wrath against sin. All of these would also be uh, possible meanings. Uh, Happily, the second part of the verse is probably even clearer than that. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So it said here that there was a rainbow about the throne. Some have suggested, because of the fact that it is green, that perhaps only something like unto a halo is is intended here. What's the problem? Why would, why would they say that? Well, rainbows are uh, the full spectrum of colors, not just green and here we have a rainbow that is said to be green and so they said perhaps uh, intended here is simply a halo but I don't think so it, hold your place in Revelation and turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 1 there is no doubt and we'll see this more fully as we proceed through John's vision that Daniel's vision particularly in the seventh of Daniel And Ezekiel's vision in chapters 1, 2, and 10 are very much in view. And I do think that we get a a fuller picture of what is intended here by the bow or halo in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. Ezekiel is, is uh, more expressive than John at this point. It has led some interpreters to conclude that, although not expressed here, what you have is the Shekinah cloud. Remember that cloud that was always said to accompany Israel in its wilderness wanderings and to abide over the Ark of the Covenant, frequently present in the visions of God. There was something of a cloud um, that uh, obscured or hid the presence of God. And in the midst of this cloud, as Ezekiel describes it, there is something like a rainbow reflected, very much like we see in the clouds of heaven, uh, When the light is right, the rainbow reflected and round about. This seems to imply the presence of the Shekinah cloud and the colors of jasper and the sardine stone radiating out of it and something of a rainbow encircling it. But the rainbow is like unto an emerald. And again, we can be sure that whatever else the emerald might signify, it speaks of God's glory. But it appears that green was the dominant color in this rainbow. More noticeable and noteworthy than all of the other uh, colors. The significance, again, part we can be pretty confident about and part less so. When we see the rainbow in the scripture, our minds immediately travel back to Noah's flood and the rainbow and the covenant that God made with Noah, that he would never again destroy the earth by water in spite of the fact that man deserves this kind of a destruction. You remember God says... um, Just as he said before, the the flood, he says that man's heart is no different. His heart is only set upon wickedness and that all of the time. Man continues to deserve this destruction. But God enters into covenant and promises that he will not destroy the earth by water again. Here we have um, further attributes of God displayed for us. His goodness, grace, and mercy. Very interesting and significant that God's throne is portrayed here as being surrounded by the rainbow. And we're told in the Psalms, Psalm 111.5 in particular, that God is ever mindful of his covenant. As if when he looks upon his people, he views his people through the halo of this rainbow. This part is, is certain and uh we can be pretty confident that, our, that this image is meant to take our minds to Noah and the Noahic Covenant. But there's a part that's less certain. And that pertains primarily to the greenness of the rainbow. Interpreters say that green, of all of the colors, is particularly pleasant to the eye. And it is the color of growing things. Life which is always to us a sign of God's goodness and kindness. When the greenness of spring returns, I hope that your minds are drawn to the goodness of God. After the barrenness and cold and snow of winter, the greenness uh, reminds us that God is good and that he provides all of the things that we need for life and health and strength, everything that's necessary to nourish man. It's also possible that the greenness is meant to indicate that God's covenant, although ancient, is always fresh and new, like a living and growing thing. So it's not the brownness of the grass in the winter that's in view, but the greenness and newness of the of the grass in the spring. Finally, uh, James Durham suggests that this gray, green rainbow is... Is meant to signify not the Noahic covenant, but the covenant of grace, and it's green, taking the most excellent color of the rainbow to represent a more excellent covenant than that covenant that was made with Noah. And we'll come back to some of these reflections in just in just a few moments. But having having sketched all of that out, let's attempt to bring it all into a summary view we have here something revealed of the attributes of God. In Jasper, certainly God's glory, perhaps something of his manifold perfections and almighty power in its hardness. In the sardine stone, perhaps something of his activity and power, perhaps something of his justice, judgment, and wrath. And in the emerald rainbow, Most certainly, his goodness, grace, and mercy. This much in some we can be sure of, because remember where we see God is sitting upon the throne. He's sitting upon the throne of rule and judgment. And here in Habakkuk, we remember that uh, it is said of God that even in judgment and justice, he remembers what? He remembers mercy, and he's called upon to do so. This is quite a picture of God, a very full picture and worthy of our ongoing meditation and consideration. From this picture, I want to take just one doctrine. I take the wording directly from Confession of Faith 7.1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. A couple of things that I want you to observe here, and this is not as complex as it sounds, Here, man is not contemplated as a sinner, first and foremost. He is contemplated here simply as a creature at a great distance between God. There is an infinite and unbridgeable chasm between the category of creator and the category of creature. And here, there's a great distance, a distance that's portrayed here by the divines as being. Very great. And they said that we could never have any fruition, read their enjoyment of God as our blessedness and reward, unless He be pleased to condescend, to stoop down to us and to our level, and He does that by way of covenant. So consider God first, and you'll see the great need of this, condescending by way of covenant, if we're, if we're going to enter any, into any enjoyment of him as our blessedness and reward. God is self-existent. The old theologians called it the aseity of God. Uh, comes from a Latin expression, ase, from himself or of himself. It's his up-himselfness, his self-existence. He is in need of nothing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell together in perfect happiness and blessedness. Their happiness can neither be diminished nor increased. Man cannot add anything to God's perfect blessedness and happiness. Nor can we give him anything that he might need, for he is in need of nothing. You remember it is said, um, as as Paul was preaching to the pagans, the pagan philosophers on Mars Hill, it is said, God that made the world and all things therein, saying that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. God is self-sufficient and happy in and of himself in need of nothing. Consider man. Man receives, as Paul points out, his being and all of his abilities from God. And to render those things back to God is simply to do justice or to render unto God what is his due. So he gives us being and ability, and we render it back to him as what is due to him. So this, is, this doesn't give anything to God, nor is it meritorious in any sort of way. And so we say that God does not owe man anything, even if he were to perfectly obey. You remember the teaching of the Lord Jesus. So ye, when ye shall have done all things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. So putting all of this together, man cannot add anything to God. God does not owe anything even to a perfectly obedient man. God can do whatever he desires with his creatures. So the problem is, on what basis can man expect good of God? How can we expect that God is going to be our blessedness and reward? Saying he does not owe us anything, and we've done nothing to profit him. The answer to this is that God condescends... And obligates himself by covenant. So on what basis do we expect? That God is going to be our blessedness and our reward? Not based on our deserving or because we've done anything of value for him. We we have this expectation and this enjoyment because he stoops down and condescends and promises it to us in covenant. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 8. The flood is a very good example of this. The flood teaches us much about the nature, the true nature of covenant. After we, after the flood, as I mentioned earlier, we find that man's condition has not changed. Genesis 8.21, the second part of the verse. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is the meditation of man's heart. And he is certainly worthy, he continues to be worthy of destruction at the hand of God. So what assurance is? Does the man have that God will not again flood the world and finish the destruction of man? The destruction that he had started, because man certainly continues to deserve it. He has just one assurance it's the promise of God in the covenant. Uh, Look again at verse 21. You see the promise of God in the covenant that assures man that God is not going to destroy the world again until he's resolved man's sin problem. This, this opens up a very interesting question that theologians discuss. Is the, is the Noahic covenant uh, an administration of the covenant of grace per se? Some will look at it and say, since it is a covenant with all of creation and with all of mankind, the elect and the reprobate alike, that it is no proper part of the covenant of grace, and that is true, on, but on the other hand, we find that here God promises the necessary temporal supports for the covenant of grace, which about is about as precisely as I can articulate the the relationship. So there's definitely a relationship. God promises to preserve mankind and the world of man until he himself solves man's sin problem through the coming of the Redeemer. Genesis chapter 8 verse 21. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for men's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And look down to uh, chapter 9, verse 11. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud. So how is it that Noah can be sure or assured that God himself would be his blessedness and reward and not instead destroy him for his sins. There's only one assurance. That's God's promise in the covenant. And interestingly enough, if this is true of fallen man, we we should go further and say that this was also true of Adam in the garden. That God had no guarantee, or that Adam had no guarantee that God would be his blessedness and reward, apart from God's covenant. Even uh, while Adam continued in his perfect obedience, he could not add anything to God. He was still God's unprofitable servant. And yet the tree of life is held forth to him. A sign and a symbol of uh, perpetual, perfect, consummate life. Eternal life. What we should notice is the divines have the great disproportion between the the reward and what is required. The greatness of the reward, eternal life and blessedness, and the smallness of the stipulation, obedience, which he already owed anyway. So if we are to have an expectation of good from God, our deserving is certainly no ground. He does not owe us anything. But it is his promise. The promise given to us in the covenant. That is our confidence that he is indeed our blessedness and reward. And from this I, I want to take two uses very briefly. Uh, it's altogether fair to fix this in your mind's eye. As it was in John. He sees God sitting upon the throne, the place of judgment, surrounded by the bow of mercy. We ought to take comfort, and this is the first use, that when God contemplates us, when he looks upon us, he looks upon us through the lens of his covenant mercies. So here we have God looking out upon his people and he looks through The rainbow, that memorial of his covenant mercies. And as we saw in the psalm, he is ever mindful of his covenant in in dealing with his people. Another way of saying this, in more concrete and theological language, when our God thinks upon us, he thinks upon us in our union with Jesus Christ. A union that was uh, contemplated In that eternal covenant of grace between Father and Son. The two great parties in that covenant. And we were considered or contemplated in that covenant in our union with Jesus Christ. What a comforting thing it is to think and to remember that when our God thinks upon us, his thoughts are full of mercy. Second uh, use here. When we contemplate God and God's glory, let us contemplate Him through the lens of His covenant mercies. God's glory and even the beauty of His holiness are frightening things to sinners. And um, um, we can be be much taken up with uh, frightful thoughts of God, His holiness. His wrath against sin and sinners, and our own sinfulness. His glory can quite literally be terrifying to us. And there have been many pious Christian souls that have sunk under these apprehensions, these apprehensions of the wrath of God against sin. But John, even as he looks upon uh, God in this visionary experience, And he sees in the Shekinah the redness of fire. And he sees God sitting upon the judgment seat, terrible against sin. Even with all of this, he sees God through the rainbow and the memorial of his mercy. And so when we think upon God and even his wrath against sin, we must always join with that covenant mercies and think upon God in relationship to those covenant mercies. And what a great comfort it is that he invited both John and us to consider and to contemplate him in this way. Our God is indeed angry with sin and sinners every day. But we are considered in our union with Jesus Christ. And His covenant mercies to us, which are yes and amen, and our Savior ought to ever be part of our contemplation and our consideration of Him. So when you think upon your God, think upon Him through that that mist of the rainbow and the mercy of which it speaks. Let us pray together.